Our reading this evening is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and you'll find it in the Church Bible on page 1173. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thanks, Leslie Ann, very much. And evening, everyone. It's really good to see you. Please do keep your Bible open there at page 1173 as we look more uh, at Paul's words. Let me say a quick prayer. Uh, Father God, thank you that you speak to us in the Lord Jesus because you love us. Please help us uh, to reflect on um, what will be good and helpful for us and what will be honoring to you as we consider the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, if you know me, you'll know I have a terrible memory, but one thing I remember from primary school is our teacher telling us that a good story has three parts, a bit like a fish. She drew us a picture of a fish, a bit like this. Did this earlier, I'm quite proud of it. Um, I think the reason I remember it is I, I really liked fish, so uh, it stuck with me, but she said a good story has three parts, beginning, middle, and an end. A bit like a fish. It's a terrible illustration. Um, why are we talking about fishy stories? Uh, well, last week we talked a bit about our stories, my story, your story, are the story of our lives. Uh, 
And the question for us tonight is, what do you think will most shape your story? If our stories have three parts, beginning, middle, end, our past, present, future, then what do you think it is that most shapes your story? Maybe it's something about you, uh, the state of your health, your physical health and what happens there, uh, your mental health uh, and its condition, uh, the condition of your finances going up and down. Maybe that's what you think will most shape your story, your upbringing and how that shaped you, your looks. Maybe it's that kind of stuff you think most shapes your story. Or maybe it's something beyond you. Today, many people think it's a state of the environment that'll be the most significant factor in shaping our stories. Or global politics and economics uh, and developments there. Maybe the rise of big tech and stuff like AI that's all over the news. Uh, that's what'll have the biggest impact on our stories. Well, into all that, the Apostle Paul writes to Christian believers and says the big thing that'll shape your story more than anything else can be summed up with two words, in Christ. That your belonging to Jesus is the defining reality at every point, beginning, middle, and past, present, future. See, last week we saw how all Christians, uh, whatever our different stories, have one shared story. It spans from eternity past to eternity future. It tells how we've gone from rags to riches. Above all, it says we've been shown amazing grace. And it's our story through union with Christ. So what is our story, our past, present, future in Christ? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But first, if you were here last week, a refresher on why we're being told this. God's put this in his word so we'll be assured of our identity. That phrase uh, you hear lots today, or, or that kind of rumbles under things, be true to yourself, gets a, a bad rap in Christian circles, be true to yourself. The mindset behind it can be really unhelpful. But if I see myself the way God wants me to see myself, if I see myself as belonging to Jesus, my core self-understanding is that I'm a person in Christ, then Yes, absolutely, be true to yourself, because that's who we are as Christian believers, people in Christ. At the deepest level, whatever else might be true of us, it is outweighed by belonging to Jesus. This is here to help us see ourselves that way. And the other reason is to help us praise God. In other words, so we'll be dog people, not cat people. Let me uh, explain what I mean. Uh, Paul says that in Christ, we've received the most amazing spiritual blessings. Uh, we are privileged people. Well, the goal is we respond like dogs, not like cats. Uh, you know how it is. Uh, if someone's kind to a dog, the dog thinks to itself, oh my gosh, this person's being so good to me. They're, they're wonderful. They must be gold. Whereas when someone's kind to a cat, the cat thinks to itself, my gosh, this person's being so good to me. They've given me so much. I must be God. Well, whether that's fair or not to dogs and cats, I'll let you decide. Uh, but Paul wants us to know how blessed we are in Christ, not so it goes to our heads, but so we have big thoughts of the giver. 
if he's been so good to us, how praiseworthy he must be. Assurance, praise. That's what this is meant to lead to. And so what is our story, our past, present, future in Christ? Well, unlike a fish, it has four parts, because as we move through this passage, Paul says, you've been chosen in Christ, you've been redeemed by Christ, you are included in Christ, and you will be heirs in Christ. On the timeline, you'll see uh, the first and last of those, they're not marked on as specific events, because Paul says our stories stretch back to eternity past, when God chose us in Christ, and they'll stretch forward to eternity future when we'll be heirs in Christ. In other words, there's never been a time and never will be a time when our stories are not bound up with union in Christ. The second and third parts, they are marked on the timeline uh, as events in history, when our redemption was achieved at the cross. And then the point in our own kind of personal experience, when we believed the Christian message and came to share in Christ. But do not miss the reality that envelops uh, and surrounds, underpins the whole thing. Every stage of our story, our being chosen, redeemed, included, heirs, is all in Christ, part of our union with Him. So that if we are Christian believers, we can wake up and say to ourselves, we are people whose past, present, future, in time and eternity, is defined by union with Christ more than anything else. And tonight we're going to take that second part, uh, being redeemed in Christ, and think about that more under this heading. Praise God for redeeming us in Christ. Leslie Ann kindly uh, read the whole passage for us, but, and we're going to keep the whole thing in view, but we're going to focus in on verse 7 for the rest of our time. Uh, let me read verse 7 once more. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Just one verse, but we can ask a bunch of questions of it. Of it. Uh, a little rhyme I've adapted slightly. Everything I learned, I've learned from five guys who, what, where, how, and why. So who is it we're talking about? Well, it's Christian believers Paul's speaking to. That's the who, that's who the we is. And it brings us back to last week. This we isn't a random group. There are people chosen by God before creation. That's what the previous verses are getting at. If you're a Christian, Here's the reason why God has graciously set His love on you from all eternity. You chose God in Christ because in eternity God chose you in Christ. And so what do we have as God's chosen people? Redemption, which is one of those kind of uh, jargony Bible words. So what does it mean? Well, imagine someone's in a terrible state. Maybe they're a slave with no prospect uh, of freedom, or they're being held hostage with a gun to their head. Redemption means securing their release by the payment of a price. They're facing a terrible fate, but you pay for them, redeem them, and they're set free. 
And I guess the natural thing is we might think to ourselves, I've never needed redemption like that, never been enslaved or had a gun to my head. But Paul gets specific and says he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. That's what we have. And we'll dig into that more. But where do we have it? In him, Paul says. This redemption, this forgiveness is found in Christ. In other words, it's personal to him. Can't be disconnected from Christ's person or had apart from him. We have it only in union with Christ. And that leads to how we have it, through his blood, says Paul. In other words, here's the price Jesus paid. He secured our redemption not by shelling out a six-figure sum, but by shedding his blood, giving his life for us. And a natural final question would be, why? Why do we have this? Well, not because of any worthiness or achievement on our part, but in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Grace, that's another kind of jargon word we use all the time, isn't it? Uh, different ways to think of it, but I find this helpful. Grace is God doing for us what we can't do and giving to us what we don't deserve. A little description like that is helpful, I think. What it doesn't capture is what Paul says is about how God shows us grace. He shows it gladly and lavishly. God delights to be gracious to us, and he's gone all out in Christ. Well, that's our five guys. Uh, who, what, where, how, and why. But as we take this in, a few areas for us to push into uh, a little more deeply. Why do we need redemption? What did Jesus' death achieve? And who is redemption for? Let's take the first of those. Why did we need to be redeemed? And we could answer that from, from our angle uh, and from God's angle. From our angle, we have all sorts of needs, don't we? We need food, water, shelter. Uh, days hotter than this, maybe. We need help dealing with the heat. But our deepest need is for forgiveness. I remember some years ago feeling I'd been really wronged by someone I knew. I was in the right. They were in the wrong. But then one evening, and I still can't really put my finger on the trigger, one evening realizing how deeply I had wronged them and how they didn't need to say sorry to me. I was the guilty one, and I really needed their forgiveness. And that realization reflects on a very small level, coming to realize I need forgiveness from God. See, we live in a moral universe with a real right and a real wrong because the God behind it all is perfectly good. He can't tolerate evil. And so the bad things that I think and say and do don't just get me into trouble with other people if they're found out. They get us into trouble with God. And I'm tempted to excuse myself. Of course I am. I'm not neutral when it comes to my guilt. But the fact remains, the good God cannot overlook evil. He must punish it. If your and my evil isn't dealt with, he must punish us. And so the Christian message in the first instance is not, here are some useful tips on how we can be better people. The Christian message is, we need forgiveness more than anything. And so if we ask why God needed to redeem us, the answer is, he had every reason not to. There was absolutely nothing 
requiring him to forgive us. In fact, he could punish the lot of us, and he'd be entirely within his rights. Someone once said of their sins when they were kind of uh, made aware of them, don't worry, God will forgive me. That's his job. How do you imagine anything more arrogant or ignorant, thinking God has to forgive us? And as well as that, it would stop us seeing the wonder of grace that he would choose to, not because he had to, but in love he chose to redeem us in eternity. Why would God the Father choose a people to bring into his family knowing they'd be guilty, knowing they'd need redeeming? Out of gracious love. In history, why would God the Son take on human nature, live the perfect life we fail to live, and die the death we deserve? Why would the king of the universe pay with his own blood for guilty sinners to be forgiven? Because Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said, Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was most deformed for his church. Christian believer, do you see the lovely love of Christ for you in him being beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross for your sins? Not because he had to, because it was his job. If we'd been lost forever, Christ wouldn't have lost a thing. But in love, he paid the price so we could be redeemed. Do you wonder why he did that? If you do, if you wonder why, this poem, I'm going to read a fairly long extract. This poem puts it movingly. Lord, what is man? Why should he cost thee so dear? What had his ruin lost thee? Sweet Lord, what were it to thee if there were no such worms as we? Heaven, nevertheless, still heaven would be. Should mankind dwell in the deepest hell, what have his woes to do with thee? Should not the king still keep his throne because some desperate fool's undone? Or will the world's illustrious eyes weep for every worm that dies? If I were lost in misery, what was it to thy heaven and thee? What was it to thy precious blood if my foil heart called for a flood? What if my faithless soul and I would needs fall in with guilt and sin? What did the lamb that he should die? What did the lamb that he should need when the wolf sins? himself to bleed. If my base lust bargained with death and well-beseeming dust, why should the white lamb's bosom write the purple name of my sin's shame? Why should his unstained breast make good my blushes with his own heart blood? O oh, my Savior, make me see how dearly thou hast paid for me, that lost again my life may prove, as then in death, so now in love." Moving thoughts, isn't it? Why we needed to be redeemed. Next area, what is it Jesus' death achieved? I guess we can imagine, can't we, a pointless sacrifice. Picture a damsel in distress, hanging off a cliff, clinging on for dear life. The hero grabs a rope, cries, I'll save you, heroically swings across the ravine. But he's mis miscalculated, swings right past her, splats into a cliff face. Well, unlike that silly example, Jesus' sacrifice actually achieved something. He secured redemption for his people, because on the cross, he took their punishment, and with his blood, he paid the price for their sins, bought their forgiveness, 
He's done it. So the Christians rightly say to each other, Jesus died for us in our place, so we are redeemed. Now, if you've been around Christian things for any length of time, this talk about Jesus dying for our sins will not be new to you. But for a minute, let's linger on the fact that his death actually achieved something. To do that, I'd like us to imagine, um, this may be a bit old school, but imagine someone sharing the Christian message uh, to a stadium full of people, Wembley or somewhere like that, packed with people. And the speaker tells them how Jesus died for all of us, every person. He paid for everyone's sins. And so the key thing is that you accept Jesus died for you. If you do, you'll be forgiven. If you don't, you won't. Now, it's great lots of people come to faith in Jesus through a message like that. I include myself in that. But it's worth thinking about. Imagine a person who in that stadium leaves unconvinced by what they've heard. Well, according to the speaker, that person won't be forgiven their sins because they haven't accepted Jesus died for them. But if Jesus died for them, then haven't their sins been paid for already? So the sins have been paid for. Jesus has taken the punishment their sins deserve, but they're still going to be punished for those same sins Jesus has paid for with his blood. Sorry if this seems pernickety, but you end up in a place where apparently Jesus can have died for you, uh, but he might as well as not have where Jesus has paid for your sins, but you're not forgiven. So the person who leaves the stadium unconvinced, I guess you'd have to say Jesus intended to redeem them, but he couldn't manage it. His death for them didn't achieve what Jesus wanted it to because they didn't accept it. And the person who leaves the stadium, on the other hand, rejoicing, Jesus died for me, well, that seems quite a hollow thing to say. Because apparently anyone, forgiven or not, can say, Jesus died for me. When I slip into sin and I'm burdened by my guilt, what comfort is there in knowing Jesus died for me when apparently his death can fail to achieve what Jesus wanted it to, forgiveness? Well, happily, God's word does not leave us there with a Savior whose death makes forgiveness possible for everyone, but doesn't actually make it certain for anyone. No, Jesus is a redeemer who in his death really does redeem. Last week we saw that for Christian believers, we chose God because in eternity he chose us. How from all eternity, God has chosen a people in Christ to be holy, blameless, part of his family, And this people chosen by God in eternity, Jesus has redeemed in history. Some verses uh, on the screen uh, on how Jesus would do more than just make redemption possible. He would make redemption certain for his people. That he would be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He loved the church, gave himself for her to make her holy the church which he bought conclusively with his blood, uh, that by his death, Jesus would achieve certain forgiveness for his church, what God the Father planned.
planned in eternity in Christ. God the Son really did achieve. And the upshot for Christian believers is that even before we put our trust in Christ, He's already secured our forgiveness. He has bought our forgiveness for us as a certain reality that we now experience. And so we can say to each other, Jesus died for us. Say to myself, Jesus died for me. Not in a hollow way, but reassuring each other he paid for our sins, so they really are forgiven, dealt with. You have forgiveness through his blood. Christ secured it for all his people. He's done it. Which leads to this final area, who is redemption for? Because you can see, if we're saying Jesus died not for everyone in general, but to actually save his people, if that reflects the Bible's teaching, then does that mean that we've got nothing to say to not yet Christians? Maybe that's you tonight. I'm not thinking, okay, if I'm not a Christian, then Jesus died for his people. I guess there's no hope for me. And wonderfully, no, we can say there is hope for you if you will turn to Christ and take hold of him in faith. Forgiveness is found in him alone, full forgiveness for everyone who will come to him. If you do that, you will share in all the benefits of his death. Whatever you've done, Christ will be your redeemer. And trusting in him, you'll be able to join the rest of God's people in saying, in confidence, Jesus has died for us. Well, big things uh, to think about, get our heads around, but they are to lead to assurance.